Chicago. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of room and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Michael Bauer, Ray Hanania, Charles Lipson, and Khalil Marar. Our program tonight comes to you base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And if you want to join us on the World Wide Web, it is beyondthebeltway.com. We begin week number three. The voice is not real strong. A little bit better than last week, but hanging in there trying to get rid of whatever I have. Uh, As has been our format for the last several weeks, I want to begin by asking each of our guests to share with us what they think was the most significant issue uh, last week. And there was was a lot of big issues last week. But let me start with you. Michael Bauer, you're one of our card-carrying Democrats. You're also chairman of the Illinois Holocaust and Genocide Commission. What's your answer to that question? I think to me... Uh, probably the most uh, uh, fascinating issue is the fact that the hashtag MeToo movement, the sexual harassment and sexual abuse movement, has finally hit hard the halls of Congress. You had three members of Congress, Al Franken, John Conyers, and Trent Franks, uh, stepping, announcing their resignations, and, and I assume this is just the beginning and far from the end. Uh, Ray Hannity also joins us. Ray, well, you I- are, by the way, a journalist, a stand-up comedian, Author of the book, I'm Glad I Look Like a Terrorist, and Arabs in Chicago. I am. gets me a lot through the airport. When I walk <laughs> through it, I get a lot of support. Um, that, to me, obviously, the biggest story, I think, is the issue of Jerusalem and uh, uh, President Trump kicking the game board and of the Middle East peace process that's been in a coma for the past 20-some, 24 years. And, and I think what's most significant about it isn't, you know, everybody's anticipating violence, but what I anticipate is the bigger issue that's going to come out of this is that it's going to put a lot of pressure on all these Arab, Arab governments that have been quietly opening doors with Israel and normalizing relationship. I think that's the thing that's going to be stopping if this Jerusalem thing really continues to move forward. Khalil Marar also joins us. He's with Governor State University. Khalil, nice to have you back. It's been a while since you've been here. You are author of The Arab Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. So I think I know the answer to the question, but what it is, what is it? I, I would say that some that traverses domestic and international politics is that the President of the United States of America actually gave Congress something that they are very vocal about, but something that they never really wanted. And Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you very much, Bruce. I uh, actually agree with what people have said, but I'm going to name a different issue. I think the fact that the Senate uh, passed tax reform, uh, tax cuts, um, and I think that that's absolutely crucial. I think that if they had failed to do that, that would have been an even bigger story because it would have just dashed the hopes of the Republicans. But I think that it's a huge story. Okay. Uh, tonight we have two Jews and we have two Palestinians. What kind of journalist are you? I'm trying <laughs> to. Equal I'm a going table to bring like that. I've never, I'm it's going unheard to of. bring peace to this table at least tonight. But for, stop him from making a tunnel. Thank you, Mister. Thank you, Mister <laughs> Trump. Let me, oh Khalil, God. I want to start with you. 
What's the big deal about moving a capital? It's you know Jerusalem. What's the big deal? There's been a de facto, as Netanyahu has has pointed out, the Prime Minister of Israel. There's been a de facto existence of the capital, um, in all but name only and recognition, which is crucial. Um, the big deal is that Jerusalem is holy for Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and to say that is it is the eternal capital of the Jewish state might rub a lot of Christians and Muslims the wrong way. Um, that's the big deal. Charles, I'm going to elaborate on that, if you will. And I, let, me, let me ask a follow-up question that a lot of people would say, okay, well, why can't they both have it as their capital? They can't. Why don't they share it? They, but they can, but in one. I think the one thing that it rules off the table is the internationalization of the city, which for some time some people had wanted. It doesn't rule out the fact that the Palestinians could at some point have a portion of the city as their capital. That is not what the U.S. said. Here's the big issue, it seems to me. Do you think that this removes a lever from the negotiations if they were ever to go forward. There is no peace process right now. But if they were to ever go forward, does this remove a lever and an incentive? Or conversely, do you think that the greater uh, likelihood of peace is if Israel feels that it is secure, that it's got what it wants, that the Americans are backing it, or if it uh, which is the Trump approach, or if it's insecure, feels that American uh, support is contingent as it was under Obama. Michael. You know, there are some uh, well-known sports figures who uh, openly opine in this day and age that the world is flat. Hmm. Now, they can say all they want that the world is flat, and they can put it out to all their followers on Twitter and Instagram, but it's not going to change the fact that the world is round. That's just a fact of the situation. As far as Jerusalem, Jerusalem has been and continues to be the capital of Israel. I'm not a fan of the Netanyahu government, but across the entire Israeli political spectrum, there is a perception that Israel has a unified capital in the city of Jerusalem, that the entire city of Jerusalem is and will remain the capital of Jerusalem, and that's, frankly, a non-negotiable issue. So all that Trump did this week is, is deal with the reality of the situation. And its effect on the peace process, as Charles said, there is no peace process, so it has no effect. Ray? I, you know, everybody always said, Ray, why are you supporting Donald Trump? And I said, he's the only guy that is going to stumble into the Middle East peace process, kick the game board up in the air, and give Palestinians a chance to level the playing field. Uh, this is exactly what I was hoping for. Now, just as you know, Michael said, Everybody has already recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, even if the president hasn't said it. The Congress has. Um, leaders that are significant in the United States, they have. What Trump didn't do that I thought was significant was he didn't say, I recognize Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. He didn't say that he recognized Jerusalem that included East Jerusalem, where my family, actually my family's from West Jerusalem, kicked out, went to East Jerusalem. Um, he didn't say that. So to me, what I think he said was, you know what, I'm going to light the fuse on this and see what happens. And sometimes people who negotiate and want to negotiate have to move people by doing something dramatic, and that's Khalil, all this is. I want to ask the follow-up to Khalil. Does this mean in, in your mind that because 
the Israelis are happy at the moment, mm -hmm. and the Palestinians and the Arab world is not happy at the moment. Does that mean that the next big move, even though the United States says they want to sort of stay up, does the, does the next big move come when the United States maybe comes down hard on Israel and says, you've got to do, I've delivered the capital to you. Yeah. You've, you've got to step up and do something really dramatic for the peace process. That's the question. We're going to take some time to think sure. about it. And when we come back and also lay out some ideas as to what the big, big thing, the big, big ask of Israel might be. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Back in Chicago, and the question to Khalil Marar uh, is, what should, what do you think the United States is going to say to Israel to demonstrate that they're going to pay the United States back in some way for President Trump's response and giving them something they've always wanted? Absolutely. Or do you don't think that's going to happen? Look, I mean, and that, that was a very important question that you asked before the break, and that is, you know, what are we buying with this, um, if you look at it that way, especially for a president that prides himself on being the negotiator-in-chief, uh, The Art of the Deal um, is a book that he wrote. I, I think this is a disaster for deal-making uh, for President Trump. You never go into a deal, whether it's in business, the private sector, or the public sector, where you put on the table exactly what you're going to give the person that you're negotiating with, and then give it to them in such a way that there's absolutely no expectation of anything in return. It's ludicrous um, from a deal-making perspective. Now, that's just a deal-making perspective. We can talk about the diplomatic, political, and economic implications later. Um, so you're saying Donald Trump is not a good deal-maker? He's an awful deal-maker, my yeah. God. I, and, and not only does that, but... Does everybody agree But listen, that, but let, 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 me, let, me, let me just elaborate. Let me okay. just elaborate. What I mean by this is that when, when he front-loads and prejudges the outcome of the peace process, there's absolutely nothing at the end of that peace process, the non-existent, admittedly non-existent peace process, that is going to result in anything good for Israel or anything good for the Palestinians or the Arabs. Here, here's the fact. The fact is most Americans, minus the evangelical vote, do not care, constituency, do not right, care right. about Jerusalem. Right? right, they right. they don't know where Jerusalem is or Kabul, and they don't right? care about the Middle East. They're tired of it. They're they, tired of the discussion. They are tired of the Middle East. 50, They're 60, sick and tired of the Middle years, East. Right. To quote, to quote, you know, one of my favorite quotes. Um, and here's the more important part. The more important part is that not all Israelis or Jews agree on this. I th there's been a very heartfelt sentiment, and this is, you know, you asked me about what surprised me last week. One of the things that really surprised me last week is the amount of Israelis coming out that are wholly opposed to this idea they that were President opposed Trump to would the come timing. out and talk about this being the undivided capital. They were not opposed to, to uh, the recognition as a capital, I think. They were opposed maybe in the way you are, thinking that it might hurt the peace process. I think that the biggest change that uh, President Trump has made to the way that we're negotiating in the Middle East is a positive recognition that you can't impose the peace process from the outside. It has to be made fundamentally between the parties. Outside parties can buttress it with support, reassurance. But if you don't have that, I, I just don't see it right now. Does everybody want a two-state solution? Yes. 
Yeah. Does everyone around the table want to? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Around the table, oh, okay. and then share with the audience. I, 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 yes, but it's fading. Okay. It's fading but, but, within but Israel. I, but I have to okay. tell you, why why is it? Why, well, first of all, go ahead, Michael, I, and then I want to go. I to think. I, I mean, I strongly support a two-state solution. I think it's in. I think it's it's right for the Israelis. I think it's right for the Palestinians. I think the difficulty here, frankly, is that I don't think the Israeli government truly supports a two-state solution. And I don't think the Palestinian government truly supports a two-state solution. And each one thinks they can outlast the other. This is exactly where we are on, in this day and age, is that we're parsing things. And not, I'm not saying you are, but we're talking about, y'all. yeah, he did say Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, uh, but he didn't really talk about Jerusalem being this undivided city or whatever it is, whatever the discussions have been. Here's, here's a fact. The fact is that prejudging that peace process in such a way that we have nothing but a one-state solution is bad for Israel, bad for the Palestinians. And with all due respect, when anybody says that the Israeli government, the Palestinian government, whatever government exists in Palestine, whether it's Hamas or, or, the, or the PA, that they don't support a two-state solution, they're fooling themselves. That's the only – when you say anybody at this table support that, that's the only solution that is well, possible in the Israeli-Palestinian said, conflict. You said the, that, that many Israelis now are – are losing interest in the two-state solution? That's correct. Yes. I think that the reason um, uh, the Israelis would like to get out from the process of ruling over uh, a population that doesn't want to be ruled over and is of a different religion and in many cases doesn't like them. The uh, That's, by the way, less and less true of the uh, – Arabs who live within Israel and are Israeli citizens. Twenty percent. But but and uh, but here's the problem: the Israelis have two goals in the West Bank and in Gaza. One is they don't want to have attacks from those areas on their own population centers, which requires either a, a government in those areas that will stop them and do it effectively, or they have to patrol them themselves. Secondly, they do not want those areas to be allied with Iran. They don't want them to become Hezbollah. So unless there are governments in those areas that can yield those outcomes, the Israelis simply won't accept it. Hmm. Right. I, I want to go back to Khalil's point because I, th- I think it's really important and I think it really defines what President Trump did. Um, if we had a situation where the Israeli government wanted to achieve a two-state solution and the Palestinians wanted to achieve a two-state solution, then throwing in this uh, one-sided recognition of Jerusalem, I think – you know, it would be foolish. You mm-hmm. don't do that. But in this case, the truth is, and I think this is the absolute truth, Israel's government does not want a two-state solution. They're fighting against a two-state solution. They want one state without the Palestinians inside it. And I think Trump is really working with the government of Saudi Arabia, which has a peace plan out there that continues to want to position itself in the shadow of this uh, emerging Iranian threat with all the problems that are there. Saudi Arabia's plan, I think Trump is going to push it to a, a nation that doesn't want the two-state solution and say, look, you have to do it. But let's keep in mind there's one other factor in this that really kind of throws everything up in the air, and I'm not really sure about what's going to happen. He didn't just say he recognizes Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He said he was going to move the U.S. Embassy yes. from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and to me – um, that if Arabs don't stand up and do something, then I'll tell you what, take the country. 
because it's not worth it. There's nobody, if nobody on the Arab side is willing to stand up and say this situation isn't good, then we will never change anything, and we'll be in a peace coma for the rest of our lives. That would be worse for everybody. And, and, and let me add this, and, and you know, maybe I might not agree as much. And I wasn't knocking your position. No, absolutely no, just... no, no. Thank you um, for for clarifying that. But but I want to emphasize that to go back to your point and Charles's point. The quickest way to get, and the best way, the best way to get Iran involved in Israeli politics and undermining Israeli security, as it has been, nobody would deny that, um, the Israelis themselves being first and foremost, is to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That's the, that's the path to disaster, and that is the surest way to get Iran back into the Western Asian part of the Middle East. I want to follow up, and then I'm going to ask another question. Go ahead. I was going to say that you know what? When uh, the uh, before Trump said what he said, um, this was a situation. Iran was a threat, and the Arab governments were not. The Arabs weren't doing anything. There was no violence. It was very minimal. What Trump did was now he's really created a bigger, ominous threat to Israel. Iran is going to use this. ISIS will use it. And now the Arab street in these countries that support or have recognized Israel are going to have to deal with this growing animosity from Arabs that are saying, why are you allowing this? Why aren't you doing something? Jordan and Egypt. Yeah, why are you even recognizing Israel? I'm telling you, the the pressure is going to be so great. Israel is going to have to at some point face the fact that they cannot continue to do this, that they're going to have to make some decisions. I don't see the pressure as being as great as we thought it would be two or three years ago. It it could continue to build and blow up, you know, but uh, the street protests have not been nearly as large Mm -hmm. as one might have imagined. They've been bigger in Europe uh, than they have been in Jerusalem and and so forth. Of course, Egypt and Saudi say what they are going to say, but it doesn't look like they're uh, pulling back. I just don't know that it's going to be an uh, what what the uh, the Palestinians, I think on both uh, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, would like a third intifada. I don't think they're going to get it. Here's, here's my question. To the Americans who are neither, they're not Jewish, they're not Palestinian, they're like tired of all this discussion. Mm-hmm. Again, 50, 60 years <laughs> of this. Here, a, a suggestion that would come from them would be, okay, this is about land. It's about land, right? Should be divisible. Isn't there some other land that's out there in this huge Middle East, maybe in Saudi Arabia? I'm just using that as an example. Carve out the space, make it a Palestinian state, and let the Arab world join together in providing the funding to get it started. And there will be an Israel, and there will be a Palestinian state, but they won't be fighting over the same land. Or take take me now into the, the deep you know, issues of this, why one side or the other cannot absolutely ever give one inch of land away. But let me just give one, let me just I'm, give I'm one the, suggestion that's... I'm giving the that's, practical Midwest guy. Okay, that goes to Khalil. Let me, let me give a question. Yeah, yeah. And Khalil can talk about it. There were uh, about um, 700, 800,000 Jews who basically were pushed out of all the Arab lands 
uh, in the aftermath of Israel becoming a state. Those people are all now Israeli citizens. What happened to all the Palestinians who fled? They, some say they were pushed. Some say they fled. What happened to them? Your, your family goes to Kuwait, you know, and so forth. They're, they were never allowed we don't want to them. blend in. We didn't want to. My, my relatives were refugees. Yeah. They didn't want to be blended in into Jordan. But they, some did, they, and they would have become Syrians and, and so forth. But also, in fairness, a lot of yeah. those Jews who left the Arab country were invited by Israel. Israel offered them support. Israel offered them money. But they Israel had to flee. Offered, they I'm had not, to flee. They I think no, that argument is not point a good is, There is a division of territory that should is, be made. Could there be a new plot of land somewhere yep. where the New York Arab City. We'll take New York City. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. Manhattan, Lower East Side, right? Yeah, I want all that rich, wealthy property there. We'll take that. 823-8029. When we come back, we'll start taking some telephone calls. 1-800-723-8029. Our goal tonight is to solve the Middle East peace. That's our goal. <laughs> Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Subar back uh, from Chicago. Nice to have you with us tonight. Let's go to Paul, listening to us in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Go ahead. You're on the air, Paul. So I've, I'm kind of a novice on all this compared to your panel, but, uh, you know, I, I did do a study during my master's on existential, uh, actually, um, terror, uh, terror management theory, and it's all existential. So there's no amount of land that's going to be a land grab here that's going to ever solve the debate between the Jewish doctrine, the Islamic doctrine, and the Christian doctrine that says... That, you know, someone's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Jerusalem is central to that point. And the reason why you're never going to have a, a two-state solution, and either side really wants it, is because they they teach at a very, very deep level this hatred. And they teach that in this part of the world, the reason why we have to annihilate, you know, the Muslims or we have to annihilate the Jews is because Doctrinally, if we do that, we inherit heaven. And it's the most frustrating thing because each religion that I just mentioned also talks about coexistence and peace. I have, Personally, I don't see a problem with what President Trump did. Please understand that I did not vote for President Trump. But every single American president who visits Israel never or rarely stays in Tel Aviv, they go to Jerusalem, either for right. diplomatic reasons, personal religious reasons, right. or what, what have you. Yeah, we've had we've had four presidents that talked about they're gonna what they were gonna do, and the only one that did it was Donald Trump. So that's this well, he is not, hasn't done it yet, but he well, keeps saying he's gonna. He, he's yeah, in six months uh, they're gonna build the uh, uh, the embassy there. Well, well, but I, yeah. I want to go back to I want to ask all of our guests uh, a very provocative thing that you said. You talked about the teaching of hatred. Now, my question to you, Michael Bauer, do you think that Jews in Israel are taught to hate Arabs and Palestinians? Uh, no, I don't. 
But uh, but I will tell you, I think the uh, opposite is not true. I think in uh, the Palestinian Authority, um, the Palestinian stu- children, with the textbooks that they receive in their schools, are taught to hate Jews okay. and to I kill wanna, Jews. I want to I hear from our other Jew on the panel, Professor Lipsom. Do you agree with Michael's response that in Israel, young Israelis are not taught to hate Palestinians or Arabs? I don't think they're formally taught, but I think that there's a, a, a large and growing amount of area, uh, anti-Arab sentiment. What I don't know is how these uh, young people are taught to differentiate between Israeli Arabs and uh, and uh, Arabs in the West Bank who right. really do want to kill them or in, in Gaza who are shooting missiles. Now, Khalil, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, within the Arab world, do you believe that young people are taught to hate Israel and Jews? I Listen, I'm going to ask a question. I reject the premises of the question, but I'm going to ask the question. Why yes. do you reject the premise of the question? Because this whole idea of hate basically assigns blame to one side um, that is taught to hate. Um, the Palestinians in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and especially in Gaza, it's the, according to the Vatican, it's the largest open-air prison on earth. Yeah, those people are taught to hate. It's pretty miserable. It's pretty wretched. Um, I reject the premise of the question because it presumes, it prejudges the notion that one group would hate another because one group got basically decimated from its land, got kicked out, and became refugees. Yeah, they're going to be taught to hate I'm, the other I'm not. I'm not saying there might not be a, a, a rationale Let me put it this way. for hatred. Let me put it this way. What if folks were asking? I want to get all sides here to, to give their assessment of, yeah. I mean, the, the caller made a comment that, that both sides are, yeah. are taught to hate him. Ray, do, do you Within the Arab world, I mean, you have leaders that say Israel should not exist, but I mean... Some are, won't even call it by its name Israel. So, and so the question is, they call it the Jewish is that part of, a, right? is that part of the, the educational yeah. system? I, listen, I think that there's two real problems with this whole discussion, and it has to do with culture. There are differences in culture. Um, there are also differences with the way we communicate. The Israelis are very good at communicating. I think they, the Israelis do teach hate. I think they do it in a much more sophisticated way. Um, I think that elaborate, the Palestinians. Well, I think that they uh, explain to their people that you know Palestine doesn't exist. It never really existed. We're part of Jordan. Uh, I have Israelis tell me all the time, "How can you say you're Palestinian? You don't exist. It was never a Palestine." Now, is that hate, or is that political anger? To, because they're afraid that I'm going to get what I want. And I think the reverse is true with the Arabs. I think the Arabs are angrier than the Israelis because, let's face it, you go to Israel, it's almost normal. Ray, you go you to think- but You go to the Palestinian areas, and I'm telling you, they're suffering. So anger is easily manipulated into the perception of hate that we teach our kids hate. I don't teach anybody hate. But, but wait. And wait. it happens you, you, on you both think, sides. Do you, think, do you think that there are... Uh, there's there's political anger absolutely on each side. Yes, but you're you seem to be asserting that you think that Israelis hate Palestinians to the, to the point where they want the Palestinians dead. Yes. Okay. I do well, believe that. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, to I the extent this, that you believe okay. Palestinians hate well, I, I look Jews at, and I look want at a Palestinian dead. government and a Palestinian society 
that actually financially rewards terrorists. No, they don't. Who blow up no, they don't. innocent civilians. No, they, they don't. Absolutely no, they don't. Do. What they, they do, and I think them. it's correct, is that if a terrorist does something, the Israelis go to the family of the alleged terrorist, never convicted in a court of law. They punish that family. They blow up the home of that for family. For a long time, they Wait, did not well, do it. they were doing for it. For a long it's time, cl- they didn't but do they it. But they did it let, let for finish, a long time, uh, for years. And then they blew up the homes and neighbors. So... A guy like Saddam Hussein would give money to those people who lost their home. That's been turned into an argument that people have been giving money to the terrorists. How do you blame the but, families but of the terrorists? You have a society that, you, that puts up posters you, of terrorists Of martyrs who have been killed. Martyrs. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. These are cold-blooded yes. murderers of mean children, like, like of women, these, of listen, innocent civilians. We can, we can go these, on like for an hour. These are not martyrs. Please. Like the Israeli who shot the guy in the head who was wounded on the ground, who got, what, three, was, four months in prison? Hello? If you, Paul, back to Paul. Go ahead. Hate? Back, to, back yeah. to Virginia. Go ahead, Paul. So, so all of you are academics, and so I would encourage you to, uh, there's a, uh, the premise of this, the book that I read was uh, on existentialism, obviously, but it's a professor at the University of Missouri who studies terror management theory, and he has, you know, it's an article that I read, as I said, for my part of my master's, that talks about this. But I want to make sure that, you know, we're clear on this. And I don't have the deep uh, cultural understanding from having lived there that some of the panelists seem to have had. And so I, I will admit that deficiency in my, in my statement, you know, as we go forward. However, it's human nature. I mean, look at what we teach our young children about the relationship with American Indians for Thanksgiving. I grew up thinking that, hey, bounty, it was great, you know, everybody was thankful, you know, the Indians were starving, all the white guys had all the food, and you do a little bit more research after you get out of school, you realize it was actually just the opposite. So, like I said, I, I wish I could remember the name of the professor, the PhD, who has this line of study, but he's out of the University of Missouri. It's Terror management theorem, and you know it, it may be a topic down the line. But I know you're all academically, you know, very gifted, and you know how to do the research. But I would, I would encourage you to look at that because you'll be amazed at what he actually says. It may not okay. be formally taught in the schools, but there is definitely uh, an indoctrination that goes on on both sides. Okay, Paul. Thanks very much, Charles. If you think um, to an endpoint and try to work back from there, what would be a conceivable endpoint? I think that around the table we would all uh, come pretty close to an agreement about what the endpoint would look like. From the point of view of uh, the Palestinians, it would look like they had control over um, basically the pre-67 land, not exactly, but pretty close to that. They had at least some portion of Jerusalem as a capital, and some of the uh, distant outlying settlements had been removed from the Israeli point of view. It would mean that they had security, both from terrorists coming in from these areas and from Iran or other uh, opponents, 
uh, stationing missiles within a few miles of all their major population centers. The problem is we're a long, long way from getting to that answer, and it would be politically extremely difficult to get there. For example, you'd have to remove a lot of settlers, and those settlers are not going to like it, and they would point to what happened in Gaza where they were removed, and that immediately became a launching point. Well, and and on the the settlement issue, I mean, I'm glad you're raising that because, I mean, the Trump administration, if it really wanted peace, as it says, would have come out yesterday, two days ago, and said that we want all the settlements removed publicly, right? They didn't do that. And, it, and it, 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 you know, that's a better negotiating tool. Here's a better negotiating tool. How about isn't, you? Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a little bit too <clears throat> much? In, you say they, you wish they would have done that two days ago. But it's much more excessive. It's much more excessive to talk about Jerusalem. Look, I don't want to badmouth the administration any more than it's already being shellacked in the media. But the truth is, the truth is, rightly so in many cases, right? But the truth is, they made an issue out of non-issue. This was not an issue, right? Jerusalem was, is a holy place to all three religions. And when you lay down the gauntlet and talk about it in such stark terms, that's the kind of millenarian, millenarian kind of thinking that the administration could be accused of engaging in, and they're basically spreading it to the rest of the world. Oh my God! I mean, like you got North Korea, the nukes, uh, you got the Muslim ban, quote unquote, which is a fraudulent ban, and then now you have the Jerusalem issue, all on issues like this president basically question, decoying from the conversation, come, just as the same way. I'm going to put you down hate, as undecided. That the, question, that the hate question is something that decoys away from the conversation. When we come back, that conversation. When we come back, when we come back, I'm going to find out how are the leaders around the world reacting to President Trump's decision last week in the Middle East. How's it playing in North Korea? We're back. Bonnie in Crown Point, Indiana. You're on the air. Go ahead. We're on the air, folks. Bonnie in Crown Point, Indiana. Go ahead. Bonnie, are you there? It's hard to get a word in edgewise with all of us talking. Here's my question to you. I I posed it before the break. How how is President Trump's decision last week to move the capital to Jerusalem, riling up everybody in the Middle East or many people in the Middle East? How is that playing in Beijing, and how is it playing in North Korea, in your view, Charles? Well, and in Russia. First of all, I think that uh, across Europe, uh, there uh, it's playing poorly. That that a lot of those leaders would uh, are generally. Uh, uh, anti-Israel, and it's not playing well. But the and issue in like Beijing, Trump. and they don't like Trump. And uh, well, hey, um, the, but the issue in um, in North Korea is a much more interesting one. Uh, nobody cares exactly what uh, Pyongyang thinks about about this, but there are two impacts that it has. The first, and they both grow through Beijing. Beijing has to now consider that when Trump says we'll take care of it and makes other statements with regard to North Korea, those statements have more credibility with each promise that he said he was going to do that he follows through on, uh, just as when he fired the missiles in uh, at Syria when the Chinese president was there. The second thing is uh, – There is a real Iranian presence in North Korea. Iran and North Korea are deep collaborators on all their nuclear weapons stuff. And I think that that issue is becoming more prominent. But I would say that on the whole, uh, the issue in North Korea is deadly serious and really dangerous. How do you feel about that, Michael? 
you, well, you think I, I think I think Trump once again signals that he really doesn't care about what the international community thinks. God it's bless similar, him. It, it's similar to what he did with the Paris uh, Climate Accord, and so I think the What's Chinese. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? I'm, I'm a, not saying there's something wrong with it, but I think the Chinese have got to be sitting there thinking, you know, is this guy going to take unilateral action against North Korea? And are we going to have millions of North Koreans flooding across our border as a result? Is that good or bad, Ray? I, I think way. it's good when countries look at our president, they can't figure out what he's going to do, and they think he's unpredictable. Um, I think North Koreans might be sitting there going, well, are we playing this game too hard? Maybe this is the guy that's going to bomb us. I don't know. But uh, I know in the Arab world, um, it's put a lot of governments on notice, and they're under a lot of pressure, Jordan especially. Do you think that pressure will response to the same question? Look, I mean, I, I think that this idea of undermining the international system that the United States single-handedly, along with our allies, built up 1947, San Francisco, the United Nations, right, basically shows contempt and scorn for the very basis of American power. And the most comedic, if there's any comedy here to be had, there's a lot of things to laugh about, about morbid things uh, when it comes to this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, especially, right, is that he's completely gutting the State Department. Foggy Bottom has been emptied out, right? Um, And yet at the same time, talking about moving our capital, to this and that. It's like, well, you have basically made the State well, Department almost irrelevant. But you have undermined our national institutions here's what voters and our national here's power. What, here's what, bad for America. Khalil, it's bad. This is what voters are saying. And, and liberals and Democrats still don't get it. Because it was discussed during the campaign. If you wanted a professional inside the Beltway thinker as the president to lead the State Department into another 40 years of wilderness, you voted for Hillary Clinton. It's not vote, the, the American people, again, again, those that counted, that, that put Donald Trump in the White yeah. House, the idea of tipping over the apple cart or, in the, yeah. or the game board, as you yeah. said, in the, in, the, uh, in the foreign policy system, they love it. Let's take you know it. You know, and you know, why, and you know what they'll say? Yeah. Because the, the, pointy heads, the pointy heads at Foggy Bottom, yeah. they're the ones that, that, that have directed the foreign policy in North Korea while they're building up. Yeah. They have, they've done nothing to solve the peace process yeah. for 50, 60 yeah. years. Yeah. Why should we listen to the experts at Fort yeah. yeah. when yeah. they've been wrong yeah. so long? Let me, let me just tell you something. Yeah. I think if we had a national referendum on whether we should continue our current funding of the United Nations, that referendum would lose so badly because I think so, many, uh, so much of the American public is fed up with the hypocrisy Yes, uh, of of the and the ineffectiveness of the UN. But understand, understand by undermining the UN, you're undermining U.S. power. Number I one, as an Arab, no, I like the UN. Though no, number Sorry. two, number two, regardless of how I feel about the UN, I have a lot of problems with it. Number number two, and this is the more important thing. Let's take the slogan of American first. This is not putting America first. America is not first here. When Trump undermines the very basis, the very foundations, the cornerstone of American power in the form of the United Nations, which is in Midtown Manhattan, that's, the that's a bad idea. American power. That's I a think bad idea. Fifty percent of our funds follow the money. Follow the money, Charles. Fifty percent of the UN funding comes from America. We have a priority on this thing. We invested all this money in it. It is the basis of our international protection Trump of power. Trump compared to the amount we spend on the real basis of American power. Look, the military. What what, what is um, the case in gutting out the State Department is that Disaster. these are departments that are supposed to follow presidential directives um, and execute policy. I think Trump 
thought, rightly, that the State Department wasn't going to do that, that the state professional, all the talk about the deep state is deeply disturbing and and most disturbing because it's accurate. The the next point is the American-led order is being challenged on four dimensions. It's being challenged by China. It's being challenged by Russia. It's being challenged by Iran. And it's being challenged because of the breaking of the world trade system. Trump is bad on two of those and good on two of those. But Obama was bad on other ones. We've got a pause. Our guests will be back. We unfortunately have not solved the Middle East, uh, (laughs) not brought peace to the Middle East. But nobody's gotten hour. hurt this time, at least. <laughs> but nobody's gotten no hurt. no blood drawn. 1-800-723-8029. When we come back, we're going to talk about some domestic politics, and we're going to talk about sexual harassment, and whether or not the members of Congress, whether there's going to be quorum enough for them to meet if some of these other shoes fall in Washington, D.C., and should the federal government and Congress pay for out-of-court settlements to people who make charges against members of Congress. I think the answer is no. We'll talk about it in the next hour. Hey y'all, I'm Blake Shelton. I love that country music connects people all over this great nation, but unfortunately so does something else, childhood hunger. 15 million children struggle with hunger in America. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks works to rescue our surplus food to help provide billions of meals to families in need across the country. Join the fight against hunger at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all first up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Michael Bauer, Ray Hanania, Charles Lipson, and Khalil Marah. Our program tonight coming to you from the Museum of Broadcast Communications, and our phone lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. If you want to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And if you want to join us on the World Wide Web, it is beyondthebeltway.com. In this hour, I want to talk about the way we treat our politicians, sexual harassment, and whether or not uh, we've reached a point for the Democratic Party that they are now trying to seize the upper ground uh, in, the, in the involvement with, the, with the Senator Al Franken 
forcing him to resign. And do you believe, first of all, Michael Bauer, one of our card-carrying Democrats, do you think uh, he should have resigned? Okay. It's a multi-pronged question. Absolutely. Let me, let, let's, let me try splitting it apart. Number one, have the Democrats seized the high ground on this issue? Uh, certainly not yet. Are they making the effort? I, I absolutely think so. However, there, there are many, many more shoes to drop. We will see how the Democrats deal with these many more shoes within their own banks. There's now a story of, about Elsie Hastings, uh, a Democratic House member from Florida, uh, having a large sexual harassment claim being, uh, uh, being paid out. 200000 uh, Yeah, over 200000 uh, we'll see how the Democrats deal with that. We'll see what other claims keep coming out and how they hit if, – if they hit House Democratic leadership, they hit Senate Democratic leadership, how, how the party deals with those. So it, it's way too early. But, yes, they are re- reaching the high ground. And sure. Al Franken – let me just say about Al Franken. He had to resign because, frankly, the Democratic women in the Senate were done with him, and, and they had decided – no more. Charles, have we reached a point in American politics where it is just the mere accusation that will sink a person's career? And because of that, should Al Franken really have been forced out? Based, based on the – is it based on one photograph? Uh, that one photograph uh, opened Pandora's box. That was the problem. And he in, – uh, the, 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 the other problem – was how could they possibly condemn um, uh, the, the Senate race in Alabama while they were defending their own? It's going to be the Republicans who are on the back foot as soon as the election uh, occurs, assuming that Roy, uh, Judge Roy wins. But, uh, but I think that the big issue is how much this spreads. This used to be commonplace on college campuses, faculty abusing students, graduate students. There are a lot of procedures. The problem with the procedures is how much due process do people get. And when you're in the public eye, due process is not just what goes on behind closed doors. Due process has to have a kind of openness. And there is going to be a specific problem with uh, Judge Roy because the voters will have known most of this. How can you kick somebody out of the Senate, he, he and his defenders in Alabama will say, after the voters have already made a decision? If have you we remember, reached a point, Khalil, where due process is out the window when it comes to this subject? No matter where you are, an accusation is as good as a conviction. I mean, let me emphasize, and I know we don't have any women on this panel, not, not, you know, nothing against what we're doing, but, but if I can speak, on, if I may, on behalf of women, most women in the United States and all across the world, and, and some men, I think that this is a serious issue for everybody. Everybody would agree with this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I don't know if it's the right timing right now to be engaged in the due process conversation as much as it is to elevate this issue, this, this very nationally and globally significant issue of sexual harassment, of rape, of molestation, and all those things. Um, what about the victim's due process, right? I mean, it's an important question that we have to ask. What about the idea that, that there's rape that happens on a daily basis in the United States of America, literally on a second-by-second basis? What about the idea that there are victims here that we need to enumerate? What about the idea that the president in office was 
engaging in quote unquote locker room talk and he's in office. Al Franken resigning. Known and he was voted on. Al Franken resigning and Donald Trump being in office. It's it's bizarre. It's it's strange times. Strange times. There's strange times. But we also have to look at some high visibility cases where allegations have been made against people, sure, including sure, the, the, sure. The, the Duke lacrosse case. And Virginia. The, and Virginia. It's yeah. totally fabricated. Those are the exceptions, though. The, the, the norm is that most the, people don't even report sexual yeah. harassment and rape and What and you're saying like is that. true, but the question is... Terrific. The question is, how much due process will people <laughs> be able to get if they're in the public eye? That's going to be a problem because the accusations come out. And one of the things about these behind closed door investigations is that we need to know what actually the the basic, not just the outcome, but uh, people have a, a right to know what was found. And there is always a question, and it's basic in our law, that you have a right to confront your accusers. And a lot of these accusers are anonymous. So it's, it, there are problems here on both sides. Well, I, I, I don't think that uh, the issue of morality or who's guilty or not guilty um, can really be assessed in a political environment. This is all politics. Uh, Al Franken isn't being isn't resigning because uh, suddenly decided the weight is just too hard. I think that Democrats thought they could keep him in office and realize, as was said earlier, that by doing so, it just kind of reinforces the strength of the Republicans who have also have this problem. I, I think this is a problem that crosses politics, um, and, and I think the real focus should be on the victims. But we're never going to get to that point in our society where we're going to look at. Uh, sexual harassment the proper way. It's always going to be a political issue, and we're not going to be able to get away from it. And to piggyback off of that, I mean, it it is a serious issue. We have to address this issue. Uh, And gentlemen, I mean, due process ought to be accorded first and foremost to the victims of that sexual harassment. I agree that we should not have public you know, we, spectacles but, but and, and accusations publicly and uh, outside of a court of law, but the court of law is not. You're, you're missing the point here. Fit when to talk, try those cases process, right now. You're talking about the victims. I'm it's, talking about the it, victims. No, it may be a question whether they are victims. That, absolutely. That's what, that's, absolutely. What, that's what due process will determine. Yeah. Who is a victim and who just made an allegation. Yeah, but we, we, we talk about and the that, cases. And that takes a process. We, by, the we, way, even, yeah. by the way, even with Al Franken, yeah. I, don't, I don't like Al Franken's yeah. politics. Yeah. Al Franken, should, yeah. Al Franken should have gone through a Senate ethics investigation, yeah. just like Roy Moore is about to go through if he gets elected, and, and let the senators yeah. ask the questions, do the investigation, vote up or down, and then go to the broader s- Senate and say, here's what we found. What, what should we know, that? Bruce? Points. What should yeah. we know yeah. about the ethics investigation when they finish it? How much of that should be publicly reported? All of it. All and of it. I think you also like have a in problem. court of law. All of it. I think you have a problem with the Al Franken situation, thinking what represents the tipping point with Al Franken. It wasn't the first uh, incident for which there was a photograph. Clearly, he was going to survive that. So, was it him grabbing some woman's butt once, twice, three times? Was it him putting his hand around a woman for a photograph and grabbing her flesh, as, as she alleged? Um, I, I yeah. mean, at, at yeah. what point did it? It's did he cross f- the tipping point when female senators, uh, Senator Gillibrand, when she stood up and said he's got to go? Again, the avalanche followed, and every woman in the Senate said go. More power to them. Democrat, More power Democrat. to them. Absolutely. So it becomes a political. We still went back. Ray Hanania. 
did the revelation uh, recently that an FBI agent had to be taken off the Mueller investigation because of his association with the Hillary Clinton campaign through donations, uh, and then a second shoe falling uh, not too many days after that, has that raised in your mind the validity of the uh, Mueller uh, investigation, the Mueller investigation? Well, I, you know, it hasn't raised the validity. It's just kind of taught me that uh, what I've felt from the beginning, that none of this is about getting to the truth, that uh, when somebody does something wrong, if they're a friend of ours or we like them, you know, Bill Clinton, everybody loved them. They just didn't want to push him beyond Monica Lewinsky. There were four other women, but we didn't want to go there. He's a good guy. Al Franken, he was a good guy. Roy Moore, I don't know. I don't like him because of politics or whatever. I think what that showed me is that there's a lot more there that we haven't seen, and we rushed the judgment on a lot of this, and it's easier to do that than to have the facts. Michael? Uh, you know what? Raise suspicions in your mind that maybe some of the early criticism of Mueller is uh, accurate. What, what Mueller is showing is, once again, the cover-up is always what gets people, and not, not the alleged crime, but it's the cover-up. And people are lying to the FBI, left and right, and they're stupid to do so. It is true. Probably the and, biggest. And, 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 and that becomes an objective issue. I do think that there's a very deep problem with our law enforcement agencies. I think the fact it, the, the Hillary investigation stunk to high heaven, and we don't know whether, even now, we don't know whether, whether opposition research funded by Hillary's campaign through a series of cutouts, a law firm which hires uh, Fusion GPS, which hires a Brit, uh, to then give money to the Russians is being was used for the FISA warrants. We still don't know that. And we do know that senior people in the FBI, including uh, McCabe's wife, got huge amounts of funding from Bill Clinton allies. Right. Right. These things stink to high heavens. And I've got to tell you, although I have confidence I had in Mueller, I had a lot more confidence in him before he hired a group of people, some of whom his number two shows up at Hillary's uh, would be celebration for her victory party. Khalil. How can you call these people fair minded? Yeah. Khalil, how can you call these people fair minded? Look, I it, again, it's something where it's being used as a decoy. The truth is we have a president in office that has all this controversy around him, and folks are still talking about you know, Hillary and, 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 and this candle um, of Bill Clinton. The fact is, Bruce, that this person won the White House. We have to look at that first and foremost before looking at anything me, else. No, anything me, anything me, short no, of that wait, 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 is basically I, a decoy. I want, I, want, I want you to focus on the question that I just asked. Yeah. If there's an investigation... And you stack the staff of that investigation panel, if you stack it with people that already have a political belief, they've already put their money where their politics are, they've done it, how can you as an American citizen sit back and say, okay, we think Mueller's, the people that he picked, this is allegedly Mr. Integrity, who, by the way, is in, one of the things he's investigating is his former best friend who, appointed who also Miller? ran the FBI. Who appointed Miller? Uh, um, Rosenstein. Rosenstein. And who elected Rosenstein? And, and Rosenstein no, but, but was you're, appointed you're, by Trump. My, you're still ignoring my point. If you have people on, his, on your staff that are investigating it, 
Why is it that the vast majority of all the people that have been hired by Mueller, virtually, virtually all of them are Democrats, many of them have contributed money to Democrats? Yeah. Are there no Republicans in the FBI? Are there no people with, without some tainted... Uh, yeah. Wait, isn't yeah. Mueller himself a Republican? No. Sarah Mueller's Palin. a Republican. That, that, I'm, I'm, <laughs> right, thank you. Of a sort. I'm, there, so the head of the right. investigation's a Republican. Sarah Palin once said, there you go again, Joe. I mean, the truth is, look, gentlemen, I mean, the, the Trump administration, and specifically Donald Trump, appointed the person that appointed Mueller. And now the conversation is about Mueller and not Trump. I don't You're understand. The no, point. I'm not missing the point. That is the point. You, the no, point, you point that is, is the point. You're decoying the point by talking about Hillary. That's what's going You're, on you're right missing now. the point. You're missing the, the, point. the reason, the, the, the point is, our senior law enforcement and justice officials are expected to be disinterested and fair-minded. And there was a lot of uh, feeling that people are being yes. prosecuted for things uh, in on the one hand where people on the other did the same thing and weren't prosecuted. That's unfair. But what people are being <laughs> prosecuted for ultimately is not for meeting with this Russian lawyer or whatever. They're being prosecuted for lying to the FBI about and it. All That's people, the stupidity <laughs> about it. The crime right. wasn't meeting Thank with you. the Russian lawyer. I the crime was lying that. to the FBI the about question. it. But if you're going to prosecute somebody for lying to the FBI, then why, why do we have no transcript of all of the investigations, uh, you had all of these uh, people who are senior Hillary aides who were given Including immunity. Hillary, Hillary herself she not was put under never oath, under and we oath have no for transcript hours. of how, what she said. Why not? Why, why not? I mean, and, and what we're smarter than the FBI now? Is that what's yes. going on? Um, yes. yes, yes, I am. Yes. Okay, then, are you then, afraid to then say maybe that? Maybe we should put you in charge of the investigation. <clears throat> maybe Trump should have tapped you to investigate. I don't want to investigate. I'm hiring people with my tax money who I expect to be fair. <laughs> right. I, I'd like to have president. I'd like to have somebody. And what's who the answer does to the question? What, what's, what is the, what is the question? Answer to the question is why why was Hillary not under oath when she testified? Why is the conversation about Hillary? Because, That's really the question. Be, because the because the per, because the person that was there interviewing her is now one of these other guys yeah. involved. And he seems to have set up the fact – he seems to have set up a special uh, prosecutor. We know it from from letter – emails that he sent that the whole goal of leaking a lot of the stuff and all was to get Mueller appointed. And so there is a lot that needs to be uncovered. I want Mueller's investigation to be thorough and fair. I'm concerned that his appointment, especially of Weitzman, but of a number of other people, and some of the the fact that there was a corrupt FBI agent who did not – we were not told that he was fired or why he was fired for months by Mueller. Why was that? You know know what's funny? This is bad for America, This this is, again, our tribal politics. I mean, let's go back to James Comey, the former director of the FBI. You know, he he uh, covered in glory. He, he, he interviews Hillary Clinton, and and actually exonerates her, and and he's looked upon as as covering for her. And then all of a sudden, he issues a letter saying we're we're reopening the investigation, and and the Republicans are joyous, and the Democrats say, ah, oh, you know, you're you're a traitor, and you're you're stabbing her with a shiv in the mm-hmm. side, and 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 throwing the election to Donald Trump. I mean. You know, we got to get away from this tribal politics. Doesn't, doesn't that tell you we that do. the guy's incompetent? 
Who's, which, was, which one? Was he consistently competent or was he consistently incompetent? Maybe the question is, his best one, of the persons, <laughs> one of the persons who was there interviewing Hillary, who gave, who gave him the advice on what to put in, changed, changed the words. He made three, he ch- three he changed, fundamental mistakes. He changed mistake. the words from what, from what would have been, what would have led to an indictment. He changed the words to, to carelessness or recklessness. For, I, and I we know. now know who changed the words. That's right. The guy who was there for the opening for her opening party on, on election. He night. changed the words in his press release. In his press in the release, big he changed press the words. conference in, in, in a way that, that was used to justify why he didn't why do she, it. That's why she wasn't indicted. But, but that's but, why everybody listened to this press conference and said, "Wait a minute, it, we're listening to this press conference," yeah. and then they come to the conclusion. Nobody could believe the conclusion based on what he said. His biggest incompetence was Our, that he let the whole thing drag into the <clears> middle <throat> of the election. At that point, he was between a rock and a hard place. Here's, if, a, bigger, here's a bigger question for, for everybody. One of the huge stories last week is the misreporting by major news organizations, including ABC, where the information that was communicated to the American people was absolutely wrong. Right. And CNN. And CNN. Where's, yeah. the, out, where's the outrage on there's, that? There's been ton, tons of outrage. Well, where's your the, outrage? The, the ABC it. reporter has been not only suspended for a month, but Ryan he's been taken off the, Brian Ross has been taken off the presidential beat Chicago. permanently. All right? Yeah, that's you know, designed to get oh, him to okay. resign. But, but, you know, these, these newspaper people are, are not expected to be hundred percent perfect. I'm sorry. You know they're using sources. They're, maybe their sources, perhaps, were f- intentionally feeding them incorrect information to set them up. That's quite possible. You know, and, and, but by the way, the news organizations admitted when they made mistakes that they made mistakes. I wish the administration would admit when it issues false information that it makes a mistake. The only time the media admits it made a mistake is when it's caught. They never admit a mistake. Well, this administration is caught every it. day making well, mistakes. That's and the problem because the media right. is You're both biased. Right. The media is biased. It's clear that the news media is after Trump. I don't believe that they care about facts. I think they're going to Do you think the president every- cares yes, about facts? Twist- Listen, Do you I think the president knows Hall. a fact if he sees I, it? Oh, yes, correct. I covered City Hall for 20 years, and I can tell you that I watched – as when you like somebody, you can play something down, and when you don't like somebody, you can turn it into a federal indictment. Everything can be manipulated like that in the media, and that's the problem with the media today. The public feels that they're not being the fair. Deep, the, the public the, feels right. that all of us around here and are these story And these stories, they feed and they underscore Trump's narrative about fake news. Yes. Yes, in, and Trump in high himself, visibility cases. But you're both right. Trump... Trump himself says things that are false all the time, and he says things that are degrading to the office of president. The media has undermined itself so persistently uh, over uh, now the last several years, and it's part of a bigger story. We basically have no institutions in the country outside the military that are widely respected by the public, and that's a big deal. Wait, can I ask you just one one situation in 11 months? After these messages, don't okay. go away. I'm glad you did. Who's 
Newmont back in Chicago. And my question to you is, uh, since the uh, sexual harassment issue is a bipartisan issue, at least in Congress, uh, how soon is it going to be when uh, both parties join together and end the practice of having some of these sexual harassment cases uh, dealt with by taxpayer monies? You referenced it in the last segment. I mean, it would seem to me that it should take about five minutes for a repeal of this current uh, status quo of how sexual harassment is covered. It should sail through Congress in about five minutes. It's not going to be five minutes, though. It, it won't be five minutes because there's a lot of people sitting on uh, on uh, on uh, problems. Sitting on something sitting that on Matt Lauer gave them. Sitting on explosives, and they're they're, they're afraid to speak out on this. Right. But but as more there's s- expectations, there may be as many as twenty more members of Congress that could get wrapped up in this. The transparency issue is is paramount. I, I don't think that they can keep these things bottled up. I think you're going to be hearing from women. I don't see how they can, whether they stop all the payments, I think that they'll have to. But I think for one thing that they have to disclose them. I don't see how they can prevent right. it. But it'll also be another issue. It'll affect the leadership in both the Senate and the House because the issue will eventually turn to who knew what and when. Right. And 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 yes. if it turns out that leadership knew of not just one of these but multiple of these, then that leadership will probably end up having to exit before the end of the uh, session. Shouldn't that be the case, Khalil? I think it should I mean, be. Should taxpayers be responsible for paying sexual harassment settlements no. for members of Congress? That that seems to me again. You're right. They're all made, and you know, everybody's going to be. It's going to be one of these issues. Oh, we really got to deal with it. We got to deal with it. They're going to have a committee, committee, if committee, they did it as, and nothing's ever going to get if, done. If they did it as, I mean, Al, the Al Franken face uh, case rather is is different because he was not yet a sitting person, right, in the Senate. Yes, that's right. The, if if they act as officers or, or, or after they take the oath and, and, and become officers in the Senate, in the House, rather elected congressmen and congresswomen, and they're accused of such activity, yeah, then I think it's per- perfectly plausible, logical, reasonable I think it's going to, spread. to pay out settlement. So, I think the next big thing is going to spread. There's been settlements for years, though. Yes, that's right. But like you're in a public university, we don't know if there have been settlements at your university, and if so, who was accused and whether they were paid out. We don't know at in Springfield or, you know, any state capital, Sacramento, City Hall. So I think uh, we have procedures in corporations. Uh, and they're going to be under more pressure, I think, to disclose perhaps right, in their right. proxy statements and all the rest right. what's going on. I think that the, the issue of transparency, it's really hard to be against transparency. The second issue is who pays. That's going to be more complicated, especially if what you're talking about is not the principal in the office, the elected representative, but let's say somebody further down uh, the food chain yes. who, who works in the office, right, who right. should pay for right. that? Right. I, I think the use of money to buy silence is wrong in these cases. It's just totally wrong. I mean, um, there should be some prohibition. And I, I don't think it matters whether you're in office or out of office. I think some of these confidentiality agreements should not be allowed to go through. I think we need to change the way we deal with this. Otherwise, we're going to be burying all this stuff for the next 20 years. At some point, the politicians are going to come together and try to stop this because I think so many more – 
um, politicians are exposed to this. I, I, I think there's a feeling that, as you said, 20 more. I don't know. That doesn't sound like a lot. In jur- there were three last week, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it could be an avalanche, but I think there are too many people around. It's the unknown around. unknowns. Right. It's yeah, the it unknown is. unknowns that are going to scare and, Ryan and, what and about Pelosi. The people, and, and what yeah. about the people who knew that they were doing it who may right. not have right. sexually harassed right. somebody? And we talked but about during the break. We talked about them. the break with what, what Cokie Roberts said you know, on TV a yeah. couple of um, weeks yeah, ago. Why aren't there consequences <clears> for when her? When she said that, oh, well, you know, a lot of the reporters, we, we knew – what these charges were made, and we we all knew that you shouldn't get in the elevator with certain members of Congress. And my point was, you were a reporter. Why didn't you report this to someone? Think of all the people that became victims because you kept your mouth shut. And your father was a big deal in Congress. Well, in, in today's New York Times, so there's an article, and a part of the article <clears throat> is about Harvey Weinstein's wife, Georgina Chapman, and and actually, is she a victim, or is she an enabler? And, right. and it was a it was a very interesting. And you can be both. And, and you can be both, right? And the close relationship that they had with the Clintons too. I mean that, that uh, the Clintons that and the Obamas. A lot, a lot, a lot of yeah. questions. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's go to Tom listening to us in Youngstown, on our brand new station in Youngstown, WPIC, <laughs> AM seven ninety. Nice to be back in Youngstown, Sharon, Pennsylvania, Mercer County, Mahoning County. Nice to have you with us, Tom. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Merry Christmas to you. You know, i got to tell you, it will be if they keep you on the air. Thank you. And I think they will. Thank you. If they have any smarts at all. Uh, You know, this whole uh, situation was tainted from the beginning. I don't know if any of you have ever heard uh, uh, Sidney Powell, who was a former federal prosecutor herself. Uh, She is a professor, I think, at Baylor University. She wrote a book uh, several years ago called A License to Lie about special prosecutors and prosecutors in general. And she especially is down on Weissman from the standpoint that she considers his tactics to be very uh, uh, questionable, uh, where, uh, and and she points out that in two cases, the Arthur Anderson case and the uh, Merrill Lynch case, he withheld uh, exculpatory information mm-hmm. from the other side, which would have exonerated them. And, in, in fact, the one case went to the Supreme Court. They voted not, uh, nine to nothing against his side. So, I mean, this is the kind of guy you're dealing with. And he also, by the way, uh, had a text. This was brought out by uh, Judicial Watch uh, when Sully Yates was the interim uh uh, Attorney General, uh, and she uh, was trying to uh, uh, not contest Trump's uh, uh, terrorist ban. Uh, Weissman actually texted her, texted her, and said, "Way to go!" Right. You know, and, right. and, and praised her for for, I'm for in doing awe. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, this is the, the, this this should make everyone a little suspect. And by the way, this is not the only person as a member of that team. Uh, where there's been aspersions cast on their character. And in the case of um, Flynn, not that I particularly want to defend Flynn, I'm so glad that McMaster is there instead of Flynn. But it seems like the question on which he lied not only wasn't a crime, and of course you can't lie 
to the FBI, but the FBI already knew the answer to it, and it, and the interview started on some other kind of issue. So right. there is a kind of entrapment issue. There's also the fact that he'd been in public service, so he didn't have much money. He, he's going to have to sell his house, and his child was under threat. So there was real pressure on him brought by Weitzman, who is the guy who busted in the door of Manafort, again, I know I'm not defending Manafort, but busted in his door at 5 a.m. when the guy's sleeping instead of just knocking on the door. These are intimidation tactics. Well, that's the way the Justice Department works in cases like that. And, the, and a lot of the American people, do not they're not aware of that. And these are convicted felons, by the way, now. They are now. Not, not Manafort. Right. You know, not Manafort. Anytime yeah. you convict somebody for perjury rather than the original charge, you have to wonder about what the real driving force is behind the investigation. The fact is they do not yet have anybody who's pled guilty to the thing we appointed to the a special uh, the the no, thing that the right. American public is interested in, which is why we have a special prosecutor. Absolutely, and perjury is just a start. You work your way up the food That's chain. Right. It's right. to flip them. And That's to right. Flip and you, t- you, you know. That's right. Now we have Kushner. Maybe tomorrow Trump. I don't know. We don't also have Kushner. That maybe they don't have anything to flip him. Maybe there's nothing to flip about. They gave- I want to go back to a, a quick question about the Middle East. Does the, <laughs> does, well, here no, it is. It's easier. It's easier. It's easier you brought to up, Jer- you brought up Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner is the guy. Jared Kushner is the guy who's out there, according to the president. He's the guy that's going to be working. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. Yeah. Does the fact that he is Jewish, and his father-in-law is the president of the United States, does that help or hurt the likelihood of some peace proposal ever being viewed positively by the Palestinian side? How, how about so, the issue that that Jared Kushner? is an incredibly untalented human being and totally unqualified to be in the West Wing of the White House. That That's be another the, issue. If that, that were the first time, though, it would be a big issue, but that isn't the first time. Does the fact that he's Jewish help or hurt the cause, Khalil? I think it helps the cause, if anything, because if you have somebody who is of any religion, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, that is fair-minded and that wants peace... Um, then it would actually help the case because he's actually advocating against what is perceived as a self-interest. Look, I've known people like Norman Finkelstein are Jewish, but they're more pro-Palestinian than a lot of folks that I know. Um, It's a fact that your religion does not bias you that way. The fact that we have two Jews and two Palestinians at the table, we're not engaging in conflict here. Religion is not the problem. Right? The fact that we're Americans means that we can have this conversation freely and openly. And even more to the point, the fact that we know something about this conflict, whether it's the exceeding tribalism that Michael's talking about, whether it's the issue of really whitewashing the Palestinian cause that Ray's talking about, or the issue that Israel basically is not getting due acknowledgement internationally that, 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 that Charles is talking about. These are important issues that we need to talk about. And I'm, I'm glad that we have folks that actually have religions as diverse as ours being able to get together and talk about this issue. The most we need to have Jews and Muslims and Arabs and Israelis talking about this issue. Those well, are the people that can solve this issue. As a Protestant, I'm glad I brought you all together tonight. <laughs> 1-800-723-8289. When we come back, another 15 minutes coming your way. Thanks.
Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Nice to have you with us. Um, I want to go back to uh, get, get input from Michael, our Democrat, and, and that is um, because of the sexual harassment issue, because of the things that happened recently, uh, including Al Franken being forced out, what does it do to the calculus of planning for the 2020 presidential election, especially when many in the party are still reeling from the revelations in Donna Brazile's book. Uh, you're a Democrat. Yes. How do you plan for the future? Who are the, who are the comers within the party? Well, I think a lot of Democrats are, are looking at 2020 right now and sitting back because, first of all, no one wants to commit. No one wants to commit because we're not sure whether the candidates who are throwing themselves out there may be tainted or not. And, uh, and that's a major concern. Um, and there's a lot of anger between the Sanders wings and the Clinton wings. Uh, and the Donna Brazil book has just thrown fire. And uh, I, I have I, a question more you, fire. Manager. What's your reaction to the book? Uh, well, first of all, I think Donna Brazil is, is significantly trying to uh, uh, find a way to excuse her own miserable performance. I mean, keep in mind, as a CNN commentator, she leaked one of the questions at the, from the upcoming CNN debate to Hillary Clinton before the debate. Yeah. All right? And it I still mean, didn't help she's, her. You know, Donna Brazil to <clears throat> me, is not a competent human being. And, uh, um, and so it's a little self-righteous. And, and I think she's getting back politically at people who she feels uh, are wronged her. It would be fair, wouldn't it, Michael, to call you a centrist Democrat, center-left? Democrat, and yeah. and and okay. so my question is, um, where is that? Is the Clinton wing, as you put yep. it, Bruce? The question is, who leads that wing after it looks like uh, a wooden stake uh, was put through Hillary and somebody's waving garlic? So uh, <laughs> who's leading, if anyone, that wing of the party? Because it looks like you have to be for single payer. You have to be against. I mean, just a lot of things seem to have moved very far to the left. Is there a leader for that wing of the party? Well, I, I don't think there's a. I don't think the Democratic Party has a leader for any wing of its party right now, and that's why I think 2020 looks extremely wide open. Everyone from from people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth wing. Warren to uh, how about to to a whole slew of uh, members of the House. I'm talking about running. What about, uh, we talked about this during the break, and this was a big story in Chicago. Luis Gutierrez, uh, who has announced he's not running for uh, another term in Congress. He's been very out front on the illegal immigration issue. Obviously very high visibility with what transpired in Puerto Rico and the recovery or lack of recovery in Puerto Rico to his satisfaction. Uh, He has suggested that he is going to run for president in 2020 because he wants to raise... The, the visibility of, of uh, Hispanics and, and Latinos that support him. Can he be a viable candidate, not so much to win the nomination? Can he help determine who wins that nomination? Well, I think he can be very effective in certain states. I mean, look at, look at, it, at, at a Florida primary and, and the impact a Luis Gutierrez would have in the Florida primary with the existing Puerto Rican vote and the number of Puerto Ricans fleeing Puerto Rico and, and moving to Florida. He, he, can be, he can be 
a deal maker. So a, a, a sort maker, of Jesse right? Jackson from the old days. Is Absolutely. That the idea? He, he, he is to 2020 what Jesse Jackson was in 1988. Now, you know, Louie, he, he you, you covered I, him. When I, he was I remember the, him as a do-nothing city council alderman in the 26th Ward for years who would come up to me as a reporter at the Sun-Times and say, Ray, Ray, please, can you write a story about all the good things I'm doing? Yeah. This is a guy who is out there to promote himself. This move is purely self-promotional. <clears throat> this guy, yes. So he is Jesse running for Jack- president. Yeah, he is because <laughs> it will get him headlines. But he he's an empty suit. Is that the- what you're saying? He's yes, an empty, he small, small do suit. Anything. He's been fighting the immigration issue for 24 years. He hasn't done w- anything with it because he knows if he were to resolve it, he'd have nothing left on his plate. Wait, Ray. He's going to exploit these issues. I don't like him. I no, think he's I a understand. terrible. But Ray, you I, say I mean, he's, self, he's self-promotional. I mean, any what differentiates yeah. him right. okay. from most of the other people who are going to run for president? Because some are a little bit more subtle about how they promote well, themselves. Well, some may have more substance than him, perhaps. <laughs> Doyle, yes. what's your, what's your take on not many. This? I mean, no. I, 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 I agree with – actually, a lot of what's being said here, and to piggyback off of Ray's comment, I mean, the fact that you have this, quote-unquote, you know, immigration ban, this Muslim ban, is a testament to just how far we are from right. a fair, a decent immigration um, reform bill in Congress. It really is just so far away. You know what? I, I, I have to say this, and, and I'm saying this in my capacity as a co-chairman of the State of Illinois Holocaust and Genocide Commission, because we we always say never again, mm-hmm. and and we apply never again to the lessons of the Holocaust. Absolutely. But the question becomes, what does the phrase "never again" mean in present day terms? What does it mean in 2017? What did it mean last year when, for six months, we watched the destruction of Aleppo, and we watched Bashar al-Assad's uh, planes destroy schools filled with kids, destroy hospitals filled with patients, destroy bakeries so he would starve the people, and, and, and the world did nothing. Mm. And not only did the world do nothing, we didn't even take in the refugees. So what does never again mean? Mm. And we have to come to terms with that. Never again means the Democratic Party should never again nominate someone who doesn't know why they really want to be president other than it's my turn. Hmm. They okay. should have learned that lesson with Teddy Kennedy. They should have, but they did Teddy Kennedy was asked that question. You and I Couldn't remember answer. by Roger Mudd. Couldn't answer. Thanks to our guests this evening. We did not bring peace to the Middle East, but again, things are okay in Pennsylvania tonight. Our thanks to uh, our guests for being with us, Dan Dorfman and Fritz Goldman and Sam Greenberg. They all help Samuel Greenberg all help make this program possible. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago.
Hey y'all, I'm Blake Shelton. I love that country music connects people all over this great nation, but unfortunately so does something else, childhood hunger. 15 million children struggle with hunger in America. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks works to rescue our surplus food to help provide billions of meals to families in need across the country. Join the fight against hunger at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv.